Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 13 of the Fitness Devil podcast. Today, we've got uh, Mark Fisher joined us for this one. So Mark's a pretty successful business owner, gym owner in New York City. He doesn't even like to call it a gym. They call it the Enchanted Ninja Clubhouse of Glory and Dreams. You might want to stick around and find out more about that. We had a little bit of choppy audio in this one, so we're going to clean it up as best we can. There'll be a couple spots where it gets a little... You miss a word here too, so we apologize for that, but stick around because Mark delivers a lot of really insightful dialogue and philosophy. We're a little quieter on this one. We just let Mark talk because he's uh, he, he carries it really well. So stick around, enjoy. If you really love it, like our Facebook page, share it, and uh, give us a five-star review on uh, iTunes. Thank you. Enjoy. Shut up and sit down. Hi guys, uh, welcome to another episode of the Fitness Devil Podcast. Uh, I'm Andrew Coates and uh, sitting across from me is Dean Guido. Today, we're going to put in the spotlight uh, Mark Fisher of Mark Fisher Fitness in New York City. So let's get right to it. Mark, we really appreciate you making the time to come and talk to us. So here's your first question. <laughs> you grew up on <laughs> bodybuilding magazines like I did, but that's kind of where the meathead stereotype ends. Can you yes. tell us about growing up with a love of fitness and yet also living in the arts and theater community? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I, uh, I guess to be entirely specific, I grew up without a love of fitness. I grew up with a fear and terror and mild loathing of fitness because I was a theater kid and I didn't really identify as someone that was athletic. I grew up like kind of playing sports and I was okay at some sports, but I was very thin and not particularly coordinated and didn't have very good depth perception, all of which are somewhat problematic for oh. any athletic pursuits. <laughs> so by the time I got to the end of high school, I decided that I had certain aesthetic goals that I wanted to achieve. And I didn't have a very good opinion of my body, which like many people really affected my self-esteem in general, certainly my confidence around girls. And furthermore, I wanted to be an actor. So I foresaw accurately that that was going to be an important thing for my chosen profession to not be super, super skinny. And I started working out. And that was sort of the beginning of my fitness career. And in the beginning, it was quite daunting. But ultimately, I so badly wanted to achieve some success that... I just kind of did it. And over a certain period of time, I developed some proficiency in it over about a five-year period from the end of high school until the end of college. And even uh, being frank at that time, I certainly didn't really know what I was doing because I was pulling a lot of information from muscular development and trying to apply it on my buck 35 frame. The reality is I did go from a buck 35 to a buck 45, and that is a very consequential 10-pound difference. So as soon as I started seeing the positive feedback loop of getting results, that, of course, fed my interest in it even more and more. And I found myself in a way that even the time was very confusing to me, really quite interested in the fitness industry in general. I became a voracious student of those magazines, really more in my mid-20s. So throughout my 20s, as I was both working on and off as an actor and, of course, a cater waiter, I, in my free time really dug into those bodybuilding magazines and the gym became my sanctuary. And that is how I moved from theater nerdy person into fitnessy person. Fitnessy. What was your first exercise in the gym? Please tell me it was bench press. 
I believe it. Well, so here's the story. Not everyone here is my first, I think attempt at an exercise when I was in ninth grade was doing a bench press with the bar. Yeah, obviously promptly came back down on my throat <laughs> and the two <laughs> neighborhood hooligans who I was with, of course, had a good chuckle. They did to their credit, save my life and prevent me from choking under the 45 pound bar. And that was really the first time I attempted to do a fitness thing. So we were not off to a very, no, like that would have been start. terrifying. So I do think in seventh grade as early seventh grade, if I remember, I had a pair of just 15 pound dumbbells was all I had was 15 pound dumbbells. And I remember doing curls and I can remember, this is really weird. I can remember at that age pulling up my pants because <laughs> <laughs> I got them over my pelvis I had kind of an outline of abs and I was very thin, but as we know, if you're a very thin person, if you've got small joints, sometimes you look okay. If you take your clothes off, if there's any muscular definition, you're in fact lean enough. Yeah. So that was really my first exercises that the first time I went into the gym, a dear friend of mine to this day who was on the football team brought me in to show me the workout regime they did for football. And I do remember doing a peck fly. It might have been the peck fly machine. Naturally chest, I though. I could not, for the life of me, get my pectorals to do anything. <laughs> we have, like, a very similar story. I remember, like, yeah, like, in my basement, my parents got me a set of dumbbells, like a sand dumbbells. And I remember curling them for, like, multiple reps. And then I remember my arms were on fire. Like, I love working out. But I was so scared yeah. and weak. <laughs> and then I went to the gym yes. and did bench press, the first exercise. So, you know what? We're, like, the same person. I uh, trained uh, a couple doctors, and they told me a story how some, uh, I think some kid in high school, he wanted to look good for the prom. He was overweight. And. I think about a week out, he decided he was going to get himself in shape. So he went into the gym and did a four-hour marathon. It was primarily curls. Anyway, he wound up in the, in the hospital because he couldn't move his arms. And he had spiked oh his creatinine kinase level so much, I think he'd given himself rhabdo. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, boy. Did he, did he go to prom? Uh, I don't know how the story ended. I don't Poor think dude. he made it. Okay. Being a nerd, well, you said nerd and drama cub. Uh, anything that is games and bullying a generation ago is kind of all of a sudden popular. Like we were talking about superheroes before this. So like comic books, Lord of the Rings, they're all mainstream. Yeah. yeah so Very weird. yet the fitness industry still like under deserves that population. Like they're not attacking it with the, the, the vigor that you are, I guess. So how did you shatter all this by creating Mark Fisher fitness? Such, I wish I had a really great answer for it. Well, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I, yeah, I don't know that I can give you like, well, I decided to do this. I think breadcrumbs of who I was and what I was interested in. And a lot of it, quite frankly, was historical luck. Yeah. And if you've ever read the book Outliers, I do think that sums up a lot of my situation. I just tap right place, the right time, the right person, the right community. And interestingly enough, reading outliers was the book that nudged me the historical context I was living in and compare my theater career to my fitness career and understand that the latter had way more historical upside because of when I was getting in the game. Yeah. Because we can remember as recently as 10 years ago, it was not, I think you gentlemen are probably a little bit younger than me, but as recently as 10, 15 years ago, your mom was not excited if you were going to be a trainer. That was not considered a reputable profession. So it's relatively recent that one could pursue fitness as a career and have that be an acceptable thing to do. And we saw in the aughts, there was a rise of what I often call the professionalization of the fitness industry and the professionalization 
of what it means to be a personal trainer and a fitness coach. And we saw a lot of crossover influence between strength coaching milieu and progressive forward thinking physical therapists with what was going on in general population fitness. And there were a lot of great things about that. And overall, my understanding is, and certainly I was just getting the game at that time, but my understanding is that the overall level of training, particularly among people that are really students of the game, that are quite serious and have a lot of integrity, got a lot better. And that was an awesome thing. One of the many challenges of that, from my perspective, is because of this rush towards professionalization, because of this desire to look like a reputable person yeah. and for our mom to not be ashamed, we started wearing a lot of khakis and collars and carrying around checkboards. And I do not judge that. I certainly carried around checkboard for a long time myself because I was designing programs. I wasn't doing just random workouts. I was tracking things. And there's so much about that that's really, really great. And I think we obviously want to keep so many of us have worked hard for so that we don't come across like a bunch of yahoos in the gym, just making people do random things and getting them exhausted. However, I do think it's important that we also do our best to make the process fun. And for better, or for worse, there's often been an inverse correlation between the general training credibility of a person and how fun and weird and interesting and enjoyable they are to be around. And of course, that's speaking very broadly. There are many people that are exceptions to that rule. But the fact of the matter was for a long time, you would go to an event like Perform Better and they would rightfully poo-poo on what would be called entertainment, where people would just be doing bizarre things, not really based in understanding program design or physiology or anything that the literature says is going to actually get people results. But a lot of these people were having great careers. And to this day, you see a lot of the most successful fitness icons in the broader culture, certainly on social media, are not always people with a very rigorous academic background in human physiology. Conversely, a lot of our most competent and accomplished professionals were not always doing a great job of making things interesting or compelling or inspiring or just understanding the basics of marketing, which understandably often is a bad rap and frankly, rightfully so because a lot of marketing is outright awful. However, it is not awful to care for the people you want to serve and take a service mindset and choose to speak to them about the benefits and inspire them um, and make that process joyful. That doesn't mean that you need to throw away your textbook or not do things that are going to get to the best possible results. Because if you do that, Frank, you'll of course be even more effective, but it is an interesting time in the fitness industry where I do think that nickel is dropping. And I think it's interesting too. I always use perform better as a bellwether because certainly it's been always very important for people listening. You don't know perform better is an equipment company that does really amazing events. And it's always been one of the most important for my own professional development events. I attend every year. And the fact that for instance, this past year I spoke at perform better on behavior change and creating community is I think an important moment in the industry at large. I think we're seeing a lot of progress in that realm. So my hope is we'll see more and more people, that are comfortable appropriately letting their freak flag fly yeah. and understanding both business branding and personal branding and doing so in a way that is generous and in the service of the people that they feel called to serve. Well, that's the because certainly one can do personal branding as indulgent and really uh, TMI, <laughs> you know, TMI under the ghosts of, you know, under the guise of vulnerability and, and listen, that's not wrong, but you know, I think it, there is a way, 
Mark, still there? Your uniqueness. Yeah. You got me? Yeah, you yeah. got you. Just zoom fade up for a sec. Oh, sorry. There's a way to bring your quirkiness and your uniqueness and what you love to your work, but in a way that is not indulgent. It's not actually about you, but it's done in the service of giving other people permission, of normalizing what other people are experiencing, and helping people feel comfortable and attracted to what it is that you as a fitness professional or you as a business are doing. Well, it goes back to and just trying to is my treaty. Well, yeah, but on the other end too, like there's some people that like their personality is that like tucked in shirt, whistle around their neck, clipboard, and like they're totally effective too. I think it's just that that's not the only way. And I think that if anything, you're kind of breaking that mold that it is possible. And I think that a lot of people are astonished, like, hey, you can do what Mark Fisher's doing and people like it. Because there's lots of people in the world. That's the great thing. Well, it's not even new either. I mean, the whole time yeah. you're talking, you're, I'm thinking about Richard Simmons. And yeah, the guy wasn't the most technically knowledgeable yeah, person totally. in the world, but he probably changed people more people's fucking lives. Loved him. <laughs> yeah. And he changed a lot yeah, of lives sure. and motivated a lot of people. And his approach and he was about giving to other people. Sure. He ended up being the limelight, the star, but I mean, he made it about everybody else and he's fun. Love the book outliers. Definitely read it. And I think it applies in my career too. Oh, and by the way, Mark, I'm pretty sure I'm older than you. We'll discuss that after. Okay. Well, how old Mark? Is that, is that bad to ask? I don't know. <laughs> I just turned 30. It's not bad to ask. I'm almost 40. So there you go. Don't tell people that. I'm not too far from 40. I'm 37. No, I'm older than you, buddy. I'll turn 40 in March. So there you so go. You're not even 40 yet. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, so once you get past that smile, I mean, when people are listening to this, hopefully they've seen some image of you, images of you. They don't know you. He's if the classical if they don't, good looking, like, charming, like devastating good looks. But you're still one of the most skilled and knowledgeable people in the industry that I've ever talked to or I follow. Uh, so there's a whole lot more than the looks and the hair. How do you blend the evidence-based fitness professional with that artistic performer? It's just a little bit further on the last question. Once again, I don't know. I think it's because when I'm thinking about the fitness service offering, I'm really only thinking about like program design and physiology and movement and all the, the inputs that I know that need to happen to create certain adaptations. And then it's how that we choose to deliver it, where we're able to layer the chocolate sauce and madness on top of it. So it, almost weirdly, the actual training credibility is the gooey, delicious caramelly center and the breading and cake all around it is the madness. So when we're creating things, it's not that I'm not considering experience outside the gate. But for instance, when we write our programming at Mark Fisher Fitness, it always starts with the training first. And then, then we consider how do we deliver this in a way that's enjoyable. And in fact, if you were to go to Mark Fisher Fitness, more often than not, the training is very staid. It's really what everyone else is doing because it's the basis that we're, particularly when you're looking at general population. So we're going to be doing deadlifts and we're going to be doing push-ups and we'll be doing the same things that everybody else is doing. And we'll be doing hopefully with a savage, savage commitment to excellence at the basics. And then we may or may not be wearing a cape and or may or may not be wearing pants and may or may not be saying also bizarre, vulgar things and pop culture references random like let's go take our kettlebells outside and pretend we're in a marching band and go for a walk but make sure you keep your core tight <laughs> keep your joints yeah, stacked yeah. and your head tall but uh, do it half naked that's actually a fantastic and, and literally like that's hilarious like that's literally <laughs> exactly what is happening we're doing these very bizarre things like a patrick swayze slingshot burpee where in between every burpee i want you to show me a reflection of something you appreciate some homage 
the career of Patrick Swayze. And then it would not be uncommon to then coach them up burpees and exercise rightfully often vilified on actually, let's actually make sure your spine is not exploiting while you do that. And when you're considering how you're expressing the work of the film canon of Patrick Swayze, consider what's going on in these different joint systems yeah. and appreciate this is an opportunity to express movement variability. So we're getting out of these. Well, they're using their brain you know, to problem uh, solve those types of cues yep. that you've been giving and they don't know they're getting better and learning what they are. That's fucking magic. Well, I've heard you talk before about like you use different names for a lot of the poses and movements anyway, right? Yes. So give a couple examples. Yeah. So we, for instance, yeah, we, instead of referring to anterior rib cage flare, <laughs> which is not always intuitive, we call that rib cage boner. <laughs> oh my God. Your rib cage got a boner up, get your boner down. We Scare. often refer to posterior pelvic tilt as sad dog. Like a dog, the sad is tucking his pelvis under. A number of colorful, borderline vulgar things we use. But it gives that imagery, like helpful. Yeah. yeah, I mean, ideally, just it makes it more evocative for people because posteriorly tilt your pelvis, again, is not intuitive if you don't have a background in this. And a lot of that approach that desire for what is the craziest possible, most tactile, sticky, smelly metaphor that I can use is because that's how humans learn. Humans learn through linking things they already know. So if you give people metaphor, it's a very powerful teaching tool. So you actually find in my experience, they not only remember the thing intellectually, but in fact, it can often lead to faster uh, motor programming. So, Come like so you're you're thinking like hey we got this good idea we should use metaphors to like teach people shit that's dynamic for training how does how did that come about did you guys all sit in a room or like you and your trainers like we need to have a jam session on these like give me a little insight to how that experience how that came to light I guess or how do you come a up with those ideas. Sure. A lot of it happens on the fly when I'm teaching and speaking in tongues. I would just say crazy things. <laughs> and then in many ways, our first couple of years, there was a process of us codifying which of these are part of our shared vocabulary that we're all committing to use to create consistent systems and experience. And which of these is just Mark being batshit insane. And we have, in fact, done in services where we work on our ridiculous humanity and we'll do things like exercises, for instance, where we may consider things that we really love as a child that we can somehow bring into our work, pop culture references that we could somehow bring into work, or everyone takes a different exercise. We think of the craziest way to say this in a Spider-Man lunge, pretend, pretend as if you're dipping your testicles into a bowl of bronze. <laughs> so if you're bronzing your testicles, drop them low. Whose childhood And we literally that? will... <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. yeah. No, those were separate, but it's okay. possible. Maybe that was, maybe that actually came from someone's child experience, but, but we literally will do in fact, in services and exercise around that where we drill on that stuff. And it's not easy because the fact of the matter is not all of our coaches are actually very insane. Some of them are just great strength coaches. So there's a little bit of amongst our internal community at MFF where we work, I think to share each other's skill sets and rely on each other's strengths because part of the challenge of having ridiculous humanity being a pillar of our person, our experience here is 
Nick. And sometimes a lot of shit can come across just not working. We've had no shortage of moments where the trainer just, it just didn't feel like authentic. It thought they were either pushing or we couldn't do it. It just didn't feel well, you have to. Not like, everybody's going to be able to authentically get away with some of that stuff. I was going to say it'd be hard to authentically and, dip and your it, balls in the the tanning solution <laughs> if you if that's not you. It was, it was bronzing, bronzing, like sorry. bronzing your testicles oh, for sorry. sculpture, so, sorry for testicle sculpture. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and and then we that's part of why again there are certain things like porn star, sad dog. There's a few other bits of our verbiage which we do in fact make sure that we all use. So we're all on the same page. And because when we're onboarding ninjas, it creates a shared vocabulary, a shared foundation. We know that we have shared words that we use. It sets the tone that this place is irreverent, a little bit silly. We're not going to take ourselves seriously, but we do have a lot of latitude for the individual trainers to show up in the way that is reflective of them because most of us are weird in our own way. But not only will we be weird uniquely, some people are weird in the sense they're not weird at all. And we have people on our team, they're just not very bizarre. They're, their strangeness lies in the fact they're just like a kind, normal person that's great at training. And that type of trainer, some days will wear a hat. And that's fine. And they'll still, you know, maybe they'll curse a little bit more than usual. But it is something we've learned over the years, which is pretty obvious, but we've learned this by experiencing it. Well, Things I, just don't go well when somebody is attempting to be somebody else or something that they're not. And that goes to the next kind of way we wanted to go was this whole idea of gym culture and creating a great fitness facility with culture and what that should be. And it's kind of funny because you've created that culture where being normal is going to be funny, but it still works. So kind of give us, I guess, the lowdown on the importance of culture for you and how you see fitness being a business. Yeah, I think that particularly when you look at boutique studios, you have an opportunity to really create a culture that includes your clients and your clients can be a part of. And I think for most of us, that's what we're going for. I often say, frankly, what we're often looking to create in CrossFit in many ways, we're really the first brand that kind of went this route. You're creating these secular churches because strength training I think for those of us who are into it, can have spiritual overtones, frankly. And if you look at the work, interesting enough, speaking of bodybuilder magazines, if you look at hmm. Frank Zane or anything Dave Draper writes, or even a lot of Dan John stuff, there is a, a philosophy of training that can run quite deep. And there's something to be said for creating spaces where people are doing a hard thing together with like-minded people that share their values, that have a common vocabulary, a common vernacular, where you're creating these ritualistic experiences with beginnings and ends that have arcs. In that, I think inherently lends itself to creating culture, though. Culture is certainly a big buzzword, and most often it's referred to the culture of a company and only referring to the internal company. Yeah. For instance, the culture of a company like Zappos, for instance, or what is the culture of a workplace environment? And what I love about the world we live in, in a service-based business that is as high touch is the culture is not just our team. Our team, of course, sets the foundation. The culture is the ninjas themselves. It's who shows up, who self-selects into that, who raises their hand and says, I believe the same things that you believe. And I want to be part of this hashtag one of us. 
or they can hear the call of the unicorns. Another thing we often say, hashtag just like every gym. There's something about that coming together, particularly a place like MFF, where we have built so much of the culture and the brand on being the Isle of Misfit Toys and being this place where anybody that feels maybe a little bit weird, <laughs> anybody feels, or even just that you don't fit in sometimes, you're a little unsure of yourself, well, good. Well, I'm unsure of myself sometimes too. Come with me and let's be unsure of ourselves together. Hashtag unsure. <laughs> okay, and I want to touch on yeah. this because that was a bad joke. I, I want to touch on this because you, you've alluded to ninjas, unicorns, um, the enchanted yeah. ninja clubos of glory and dreams. Can you explain this for our listeners just because they're probably like, why does he keep flying ninjas and unicorns? Oh, yeah. So where did ninjas come from and how do you use that to refer to your members? Obviously, that's the answer, but kind of give us the lowdown on that. Once again, it was this bizarre combination of sort of organic, but somewhat conscious and strategic choices in that I would call my clients, that's weird to say, ninjas <laughs> way back in the day, 2011. And over time, I think they started referring to themselves as ninjas. And my business partner, Mike, when he came on, was the person who codified it. And it was his idea to make it standard that we always refer to them as ninjas. And a lot of MFF's culture and our iconography, which as you mentioned, also includes unicorns and superheroes and profanity and capes and just a lot of bizarre, bizarre shit is that the team fell in love with and or the ninjas fell in love with. It's funny too. Because I often say, I'm sure I say Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say it's, it's funny because like you, you're like ninjas, 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 and you say clients and it was just so weird. So you've created that culture where like they're not clients, they're actually ninjas. And I don't think that's even clients is almost out of your brain at this point. It's super weird. And I would never let anybody on our team call them clients, frankly. And we, of course, have a bunch of weird internal nuances on that. For instance, something that I've certainly stole from Disney is the word ninja is forbidden ever to not be capitalized. Really? Because if there are no ninja, there is no ninja clubhouse. Ninja always has to be capitalized. If you ever see ninja referred to by anybody from the team, I don't even allow it, frankly. <laughs> that sounds harsh. It's not like, I don't allow it. That's you're not out. what it is. You're out. But I would, I would, yeah, you're fired. I'd get your cape and get out of here. Take your hot pants and go. <laughs> I would comment on, if I saw it in an internal email, ninjas are the reason for the season. They have to be capitalized always. <laughs> It's like we also don't have prospects. We have future ninjas. Oh, I love is, that. Is future great. ninjas Words matter. Absolutely. Ninja. Okay, just making sure. Yes. That's like army, that's like army yeah. and police yeah. shit. Like your last name is always first and it's all in capitals. And if you fuck that up, you're done. Especially <laughs> That's interesting. I like it. Uh, yeah, so that kind of stuff, that I think is how... Then we're always... And a lot of it is hard because it's so lateral thinking. It's so right brainy. It's hard to really share the process because so much of it, quite frankly, is borderline unconscious. So for instance, why did we decide to call it the Enchanted Ninja Clubhouse of Glory and Dreams? No, I know that certainly we knew we had ninjas. I knew I didn't want to call it a gym and I wanted something that felt playful, but grand because internally we don't call Mark Fisher Fitness, Mark Fisher Fitness. We refer to it as the Grand Unicorn Experiment, which refers to not just Mark Fisher Fitness, but also Business for Unicorns, which is the coaching and education company that have my business partner, Michael. And 
there is something to be said for artistry and storytelling and adding some grandeur and majesty to what you do that I think helps keep things elevated. And frankly, this is, I guess, sort of tangential, but I think maybe the most important point for me, that stuff is important too, because internally we will often refer to the road to Unicorpia and we often refer to Unicorpia, which is our sovereign Island kingdom nation state, which is 97% a metaphor, but 3%, I don't see why we can't have an Island version is an Island. Why can't we have an Island? And we will often refer to that, which we've been called to become in capital letters. So there's all these cultural isms, these things, again, that sort of mark us as part of the same community, that a reflection of our shared values, and hopefully help us remember on any given day that this isn't something that ideally is taken for granted for. Not that we're ever going to do it perfectly. Listen, sometimes business is spreadsheets. Sometimes it's looking at the profit and loss. Not always fun. I'm lucky I'm a nerd. I pretty much find everything fun. But in any business environment, and gyms are no different, it is easy to get stuck in the day-to-day. It's easy to get stuck in the mundane execution of the task. And for me, what is so important about a lot of that grandness that's built into a lot of the iconography and the images and the myth of Mark Fisher Fitness is because ideally it reminds all of us, Team Ninjas included, that what we're trying to do ideally is a big deal. Ideally, it's a mission that's way bigger than any of us that will hopefully impact not just us, but and not even just the fitness industry, but businesses in general. Actually, seems seems like it's this fun ornamentation and this interesting decoration, the tchotchkes. But I would probably submit that it's actually literally the foundation, the concrete in the floor and in the walls. That makes, I'm sorry, <clears throat> that makes total sense. And uh, I just, I love everything about what you've created with all these different approaches to reaching people, um, like just breaking from the mold and a lot of the stiffness and the stayed nature of our fitness industry and just reaching a group of people that are really underserved um, by the industry who looks at, again, the old bodybuilding magazines and they're intimidated by it or they're intimidated by commercial gyms. So I, I just love what you're doing. So kind of going further with that, we, I like to think we live in this reputable corner of the industry, but it often takes a backseat to the Instagram models and the celebrities who dabble in fitness and the, the famous sellouts who market on misinformation, you know, three pound dumbbells for ladies and shit like that. But I feel like there are a handful of people who are really breaking through. I definitely think you're one of the big ones on that one. What do you think is the key for the industry, our side of the industry to reach the mainstream? Something I think about a lot, I guess it goes back to a lot of the stuff we talked about earlier, which is just really trying to get in the mindset of who you're looking to serve and approach them with kindness and empathy and understand what words it is that they need to hear, what, how to really, how to really identify what, what images, what words, what quote unquote, for lack of a better word, sales pitch can inspire people to not take action, but ideally (laughs) take action on the things that are beneficial, right? Because there's almost two separate conversations. Because first of all, we have the relative credibility of, again, the training concept or the nutrition recommendations in and of themselves. 
So that's almost, in, in, and frankly, basically is entirely independent from how well that is communicated to the end user. Because if you look at the end user, and this is always a tough ethical challenge you have around something like marketing, for instance, your clients are searching for weight loss. Yeah. And I don't like it. Right. And I don't like it either, but I, it's a, and it's a negotiation. I think there needs to be a discourse and reasonable keep people can disagree on where the line is, but to some extent it's on us to be willing to speak to them in the language that they're listening to and also ethically decide where you put your line in the sand. So for instance, I don't really like the term weight loss because I know it's about body comp and I want them to burn fat. But I'm I'm willing to use the term weight loss. I'll even use the word toning sometimes because I know what I mean. And once we're friends, I can explain to them later what's actually going on. But that's the word they're looking for. And it does neither of us any good for me to talk down to them or belittle them or judge them for not having but definitely my expertise. They definitely don't. They're the consumer. However, there I do think probably is a line somewhere. So this is not a judgment on anybody else, but for me, I can't in good conscience ever run a Facebook ad for anything for tummy or thin your thighs. And again, I'm not judging. I think you could be a very high integrity person that is really brilliant at the fitness piece and you are knowingly using that words with the best of intentions and the highest of integrity because you know once they get you in your arms you're going to take great care of them i don't say that's wrong but i do think whenever you're putting out marketing you are contributing to the broader social messaging that is just barraging people at all times and there has to be some culpability for and some consideration of at what point am I being stubborn and obstinate and an academic that's just literally refusing to meet people where they're at? And at what point am I completely selling out? Well, and that's, and in fact, yeah. go, go, go. I have uh, often one of my articles, I know I'm busy for universities. I wrote about this. I often think of marketing because that's really what we're talking about, right? Yeah. We're talking about what can our industry do. And the answer is um, be better at marketing, be better, be more effective at making the case for what we're doing and why it's, a better way to go in many situations. And I often think of a matrix of marketing where, you know, you have essentially like high integrity and low integrity and you have you and them on another access access, right? So if it's all about you and it's like kind of low integrity, then we're like, it's totally indulgent. It's totally about what you like. Other people aren't really even factoring into it. It's just about like you like strength training and you like cleans and you like this and if people don't get it, then fuck them. It's not your fault. They don't deserve a train with you. They got to earn the right to train with you. Listen, that that's, you know, and, and that can slide up to a high integrity all about you, which I don't say is wrong. And that's, this is the realm of the artist, right? Where the artist is like, I do my work because this is my art and I give it away. And if people like it or if they don't like it, this is what I'm called to create. And that's maybe a higher integrity version of that side of yeah. the spectrum where it's like mostly about you, but maybe leaving something on the table. Then if we look at this other side of the axis, you would have what I often call low integrity, all about them marketing. And that's a nice way of saying selling out, right? Where it's all about them. It doesn't matter what I like. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I care. If I run this split test between this A and B, this is the headline that more people click on. I make more money. I can quote unquote help more people, which is always the justification for right, trying to get more revenue. Yeah. It's like, I want to help more people. Okay, maybe. Cool. 
Um, but that, you know, we, I think we need to be introspective and explore that. Then we have high integrity, all about them. And this is the realm of the modern, right? Where it's like, Oh, it's not about me at all. It's whatever the clients want. I have to take care of them and I'm burning myself out and I'll do anything for them. And my passion and my values don't really matter. It's about serving other people. I don't actually matter in the grand course of things. And I would say that what ideally would move the whole industry forward is the more of us. And again, I'm not saying I'm perfect at this all the time by any means, right? I'm in a constant process of both questioning myself, questioning our own messaging. But I think what we're shooting for is to get to that top of the matrix, that high integrity piece that balances both you and them, where it's both about your mission, your values, what you stand for, but in generously considering the needs and the pain and the hope and the dreams and the the life force of who it is you're looking to serve. Well, that's the big thing. And I think that, like you said, it's a, it's a continuum and you got to figure out where you are on that scale. Because, again, certain values are going to mold where you end up on that scale. And kind of, frankly, it'll, it'll end up being what your business is. So, like you said, you fall on this part of the scale and you're trying to get there. But the question, it's just like, what's the best fucking way? without like getting into that low integrity side of things. Cause like you said, if you reach more people, you can help more people. But then if you're a sellout, then like you're oh, not, yeah. hor- not a horrible person, <laughs> but I don't know. It's right. hard. It's, it's, it's tough, man. And like, we yeah, had a conversation. I any- Sorry. I was going to say, we had a conversation with Mike Isertel and it was just like, he's like, well, how, like, he's a smart guy with a lot, like he's evidence-based and he, he's doing things right, but he's not as famous as Jillian Michaels. So he'll never have the impact. And it's just like, I was yeah. like, you have to sell out, yeah. man. He's like, I ain't ever selling out. I'm like, Oh fuck. I don't know where you like, do a Ted talk. He's like, I did a Ted talk. So I don't know. Like you just got to do you, I guess. Yeah. It's yeah. And I think that that's absolutely it, man. I think to some extent, you know, for me, like my, one of my highest personal values is unconditional positive regard and not making anyone else wrong and not making anyone other, not making anyone the enemy. And I don't want to go on like a real blowhardy spiritually rabbit hole about the oneness of all humanity, but like, <laughs> I kind of fucking believe it. I kind of live it, you know? So for me, the other piece of this is how can I behave with empathy and compassion to people that I strongly disagree with what they're doing (laughs) and that I might even objectively observe their contributions to be a net negative to the industry and society at large. How can I approach them with compassion, empathy, because, you know, and again, I don't want to go in a rabbit hole about this, but to some extent, like, yeah, listen, and I'm not saying I'm right about this, but like it is a spiritual belief of mine. That's a part of myself. I haven't accepted well, it's actually, like out there. I know that's like a big ask of the world to like, a pre, you know, actually have unconditional positive regard and perfect love for all humanity. But you know, man, that's honestly what I'm shooting for. And I'm not good at it. I fuck up all the time. I get mad at people. I judge people. I get pissed off. I, I, I judge people cause I, I think they should do better, you know, but ultimately I do believe it is an inarguable truth. And you know, listen, people can disagree, but obviously I think I'm right that, <laughs> that everybody really is doing the best they can from where they are. Yeah. Even when objectively it's quite shitty. Yeah. I don't think like, and I'm not going to fucking chill you, but the people, let's say the people that are there with that low integrity, like, I don't think that they started and they might not be in a place where they're, yeah, they're trying to fuck over people. Like they're obviously trying to survive and make money, but it's just like, yeah, you want to shake them and be like, listen, that you, you fucking stupid. Even <laughs> I wish you were better. Yeah. And, and yeah. And listen, I, w- I would almost, you know, it was, you know, as we're talking through this, I almost like feel like I need to go back to the matrix and rename it. Yeah. So basically the low integrity framing that I've talked about in that matrix. Now that we're talking about, it, I think frankly, probably isn't even 
charitable enough because I don't think again, anybody, <laughs> and again, like I know people are probably going to listen to this and be like, you're a dreamer, you dumb idealist. And I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I really don't think any, any conceives himself as a fraud. I think certain people are more effective at self-delusion than others. And by the way, I think we're all effective at self-delusion. Like Some people are really good at self-delusion, right? And there's no, even when you think of, and I'm sure we can all think of names and, and faces are jumping to our face. We say this, I, I don't think there's anybody that conceives of themselves as fraudulent or as low integrity. I think they're just, there's either things they haven't really explored. There's knowledge they haven't gained yet. Uh, and I certainly aspire to be somebody that says yes and to everybody, but is also willing to, when appropriate, have difficult conversations and gently with kindness offer other interpretations of reality that can hopefully open up a door to a greater awareness of a, a more sophisticated philosophy of interaction with their fellow mankind. No, that's amazing. <laughs> that's an awesome answer. You've probably given that answer before. I like it. I'm just, just a good answer. I'm finding, 10 on 10. I'm finding him a little quieter here on this episode because uh, like everything you've said is just so. He blew, he blew Andrew's that. mind. I, I don't, don't know, have a lot. I don't know how much it, you, so. you've listened to Andrew, but like he won't shut up sometimes. And like, you got him to shut up. So I don't know what the hell you did. Well, good job. That's all good. So I've got yeah, a chance. Thanks, dudes. Yeah. Well, I just I love having we're you on here. So I really appreciate giving it. you five stars. I don't, whether you care or not. <laughs> Thank you, Thanks, guys. We're not. Jeez, this is a great podcast. Yeah. Like, you know, we're reviewing you, by the way. We review the guests. Mark can come back. Yeah. He's a he's a good one. Totally. Uh, we're not swimming in time, so I wanted to cut right through to just one thing I want to ask. It is like, what question do you wish you were asked more often that people just don't? What truly matters that we don't talk about? Ooh. Uh, I'm so sorry. Ask me that again one more time. <laughs> That's what, ironic, by the way. When you what question. question do you wish you were asked more often? What truly matters that we don't talk about enough? Huh. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'd be able to articulate particularly a question that I think people would ask more often. I do think if there was something I think I wish people thought more about, it's frankly and here we kind of go again, sort of beating the same drum here, probably philosophy and morality and ethics and thinking very deeply, what does it mean to be an ethical person? How do I balance my individual needs and desires with the inherent negotiations of living in community, both in a family, in a relationship, in a city, in a business, in a society, in a civilization, and that I realize is deep stuff and not particularly interesting to a lot of people. But for me, that again is so foundational to everything else. I, I, I am always drawn to people that approach their business as a manifestation of a life philosophy. An example of a business I talk about every time I probably talk to anybody about business is a company called Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And it's so wonderfully hilarious and quirky. They write all these books and it's always called a lapsed anarchist's guide to being a better leader. <laughs> and this is a gentleman that was a Russian literature major that is passionate about the philosophy of anarchism, which he'd be quick to say is not actually about exploding buildings or no government. It is about a philosophy of creating organizations and communities with maximal freedom and minimal compulsion. And that sort of values philosophically focused organizations for me are, are what I am obsessed with and I think have the capability to move the society forward. And of course, 
definitionally everyone will have a unique perspective. We're all 100% completely alone in our own interpretation of where those things need to lie. But I think it would maybe serve the world if in general, more people were just more intellectual, their philosophy about what it means to live their life well in this brief mortal coil. And based on that philosophy, if they discover some things they believe to be true, if they decide on some personal values that have meaning to them, then the next question is what behaviors would I enact that would be consistent with my hypothesis for what it means to truly live a life of service and value? Frick. (laughs) No, like long story short is you want people to like question essentially what makes them happy and what drives them. Cause a lot of people don't have that question and they never actually truly seek what they want. And then they're never end up happy. I don't know. Is that better? I don't know. That's fuck. Mark, you're stumping me now, man. I like it though. Please don't tell me. Hello? Oh, I'm so sorry. I lost you guys for a second. Okay, good. Cause what I just want, I was just, oh, fuck. I, I just, I gave a synopsis. I was basically like, people just need to have a better, be better at asking themselves what makes them happy. Cause I don't think a lot of people have that discussion. Then they never truly seek what they want or what they're happy about or passionate about. And then they just don't end up happy. I don't, that's a shorter version, but like I was saying you stuff. Yeah. Me. And it's just, I wish. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. It's tough, too, because it's also, I think, part of the the challenge is, you know, there's almost these two pieces. There's like, you know, what makes me personally happy and fulfilled? And once again, you know, it's this you versus them thing I keep talking about. It's yeah. the individual versus the universal. What makes you happy and, and a life of well-being? Uh, I'll recommend the book Flourish by Martin Seligman if you want to dive into something that I think offers a lot of really actionable philosophy on that topic. And then importantly, what what way can we live to, you know, be a value and hopefully be a net positive on this planet. So we die, the world is better for us having been here. And it's complicated, man. Being human is real, real complicated. And when you study psychology, we have all these cognitive biases. It's always hard for us to see what is actually true. Man, it's not easy to be like a really (laughs) solid human being. And I think it starts with being willing to be introspective and ask yourself tough questions and well, and it's and good. That, that's hard to do. It's hard to think about what does good moral character mean. But it's good. And now, then furthermore, there's going to be, you know, we'll never agree on it anyway. But at least at least if you're clear for you, <laughs> we'll do it consciously rather than, you know, yeah, and finding out you're going to die next have, week. You have the plat. Like, and this is where it's kind of cool. And I'm sure you, you figured this out is that at this point, you have a platform to kind of display this message. And I guess it goes back to that continuum or that matrix is that you have the, I like Spider-Man, but with great power comes great responsibility. And man, you got some power now. You could start fucking mind Jedi mind fucking some people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you do Jedi's at Mark Fisher Fitness, but drop that. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we definitely, yeah, we definitely get down some Star Wars, man. I'm definitely, you know, if there's anything, because for me, that, that hopefully is how I add value to the world, which by the way, is also part of what well-being is, is definitionally, you know, achievement and, uh, having an opportunity to serve a mission that's bigger than you and your relationships with other people. So I feel very, very grateful at this point that I've somehow managed to put my career into a headlock. And even though I ostensibly work in fitness, I aspire to have a life's work that is reflective of a hypothesis that this particular philosophy I'm espousing (laughs) 
will, yes, make you more money. Yes, you're going to make more money. I want you to make more money, but ultimately meaning you will die empty and you will die having lived a life of value, which for me is the, the real prize. Don't mess it up, man. That's my, <laughs> that's my advice. It would, yeah. for whatever it's worth, you know? Um, okay. We'll, we'll tie this up. Where can people find you on social media? And for anyone who wants to follow more of your work, what's the best way to kind of find Mark Fisher and what he's all about other than the podcast? That's what, yeah, best way to find me is Business for Unicorn. <laughs> we'll often write on these musings. Uh, today we got philosophical. That tends to be a little bit more tactical, a little bit more like, if you're having trouble managing people, do these three things. <laughs> so that is a great place to uh, get on that newsletter list uh, and certainly come and check out some of our courses if you'd like to learn about anything from time management to developing a team to learning how to have coaching conversations with clients or employees or customers. And certainly people can find me on Facebook. I've been a little bit of a social media fail lately. That's the one place I'm semi-active on, though admittedly of late, it's mostly pictures of my dog dressed up like Santa Claus, which is, which is delightful. Yeah. Um, but do come find me on Facebook. That's definitely the social media place I'm, I'm most active on personally. Nice. That's wonderful. Uh, I know you're really pinched for time, so uh, we just wanted to say thanks for uh, coming on here. This was actually really cool. It was actually one of the most, I think, intellectual and enlightening episodes that we've done yet. So, uh, you know, it's great to talk to you, and uh, we really appreciate that you made this effort. So, guys, anyone listening, uh, you know, give us a five-star review and uh, and share it, like it, whatever, and uh, hopefully you really enjoyed the episode we had here with Mark. So They're going to be like zero stars. It's too philosophical, and Mark's a horrible person. Yeah, I'll, next time I'll, I, I like feedback. So I think feedback will be next time more dick jokes. <laughs> more dick jokes. Cool. Okay. Take it easy, Mark. Shut up and sit down. Shut up and sit down.